You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. Uh, good evening. My name is Darmendra Kanani. I'm your moderator for this Café Crossfire on a subject that um, draws as much controversy as many of the issues that we're encountering in this past year. But it's a subject matter that has been um, around us for over 50, 60 years. Uh, and that's that whole notion of looking at cooperative security and a common approach does it require a single security budget? And that's what we want to discuss this, this evening uh, in the next hour with a fine panel uh, of uh, contributors. But just about a little word about where this particular discussion point for us has come from. We annually um, facilitate a global online uh, brainstorm about security and defense matters. And this year, we had over 1,700 participants who engaged in a range of issues um, across the world, uh, everything from cyber uh, to you know, working with non-security non actors through to geopolitics of Europe and its neighborhood in terms of security and defense. And one of the specific recommendations that came out from this global stakeholder brainstorm, which includes citizens through to politicians and more, um, led to the conclusion that actually we do need some form of single security budget that provides the underpinning for the type of integration that we require on security and defence matters. Now, it's a big question, uh, given um, where we are in Europe, and I know people have various views about whether that can work and what its um, capacity could be and whether it actually would aid integration and greater cooperation and a common approach to defence and security. But there we are. That's what this community... Uh, of uh, uh, online brainstormers came up with actually if they felt from a view from afar that actually that's what's required because it will help with better capability better foresight and better development on real-time threats so that's where this has come from and I suppose our intention at Friends of Europe is to help you um, connect some of the issues around this agenda from a wider perspective help debate the right issues, I hope, in relation to this particular agenda, but what are the consequences of having a debate on this at this time? I know members, some members of the panel have an issue or a question about the, 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 the debate that's, we're currently, that's before us. But also then to think about change. What do we need to change in terms of mindset, policy thinking and practice? So that's our intention for this evening with you. And I hope that once we've had the contributions, we engage you directly. You've given up your evening to be here and I hope you can actually engage with us and I suppose shed light on what we think, what you think are the issues that we need to be really thinking about if this is to be something which has legs and traction within a wider policy and institutional context. So... That's what the background is and the purpose of this conversation and what we want to achieve from it. Uh, let me introduce our panellists. We have Nicolas Sourin, who is a French perm representative to the Political and Security Committee at the Council of the European Union. We have Anna Gomez, um, who is a member of the European Parliament Subcommittee on Security and Defence and a trustee of Friends of Europe. We have Christian Mulling, who is Deputy Director of the German Council of Foreign Relations. And last but not least, Amy Dodd, uh, Director of the UK Aid Network. I'm going to start with asking a question directly of Nicholas, if I may. Um, in Macron's election, to a certain extent, amongst other things, not only setting a new energy 
potentially for the European project, but uh, a kind of different kind of ambition for more Europe, but more integrated Europe, especially with some ideas around defence and security and greater alignment. We have, in this past six months, as a result of what's happened in the States and with Brexit, a different kind of galvanising order in Europe about Europe getting its act together on defence and security. Um, from your perspective, is PESCO a important linchpin of this and can it succeed in the context that we find ourselves right now? <clears throat> Does it work? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, thank you very much, Garmendra. Uh, I think uh, here, perhaps uh, to, uh, to begin with, uh, what is really here, uh, I think, uh, very important to understand is where we are coming from. Mm -hmm. We are coming from a world which has dramatically changed since one and a half years, approximately. It has changed because of three reasons. One, of uh, the strategic uncertainty in Europe. The European uh, uh, architecture of security has been fragilized. Two, because the threats we are facing have totally evolved. There are now transnational threats, terrorism being one of them, for, uh, for example. It, and in this sense, it's, it, is a, it is a new world. And three, the responses the European Union is bringing are different. It's not anymore uh, working uh, in parallel line when we speak from security, from defense, from development, from humanitarian aid. We have developed new concepts, being uh, integrated approach, being global approach. And here, in this context, the creation and the, set, the implementation of PESCO gives us one more tool. A tool which is going to permit us to be more efficient on the ground. Why? Mm -hmm. Because here, by creating this legally binding framework, which is PESCO, where the member states who are willing are engaging in enhancing, for example, uh, their, their military capabilities or being uh, able to have more operational means, they will be more efficient to act. And we know that now, today, when we have to act somewhere out of Europe, when we have to face a crisis, our response must be a security response, for one, but also a development response, because it's not only security which goes alone. We know that it goes with development, because without security, there is no development which, is, which can be sustainable. As without development, we cannot have any security which is sustainable. This is why PESCO is going to bring us one more tool which will permit us to be as efficient as possible when we are abroad. Two, it will give uh, also, it is also an efficient instrument because our idea is to be able to be, uh, to respond relatively quickly to a crisis. When we set up uh, today a military operation uh, anywhere in the world, it takes us about six to one year between when the decision is taken and when we implement it between the time that we decide to do something and the time that troops are on the ground. The idea with PESCO is to be able to respond as quickly as possible. 
which is which which will give us the possibility to be more efficient for the uh, for the EU and to act and this is very important and this is perhaps my my last word to act autonomously more efficiently and here i think there is a very no, uh, important notion which is the notion of strategic autonomy which is the capacity for us as european where our interests are at stake to be able to be on the ground and here pesco will give us a much bigger leverage i suppose two things occur to me one is who's the commander-in-chief in these situations that you describe and in a context where we don't even share essential information intelligence that member states have on the kind of routes and passages and the identification of people in certain places we're not even able to do that at this stage given that context how does that bear from what you've just said for your for your first question uh we do have some commander-in-chief, and we are working on it, as you know. We are changing things in the uh, EUMS. But what I think is more important, uh, the commander-in-chief here is the Commonwealth of the Member States, which People is also okay, the one of the... Okay, can I finish it? That's fine, but you described a situation where you have agility and the ability to move fast. Someone Absolutely. has to be in the chain of command to actually say, go for it, this is how we align ourselves and work. And we don't have that structure. Don't we? I'm asking you, do we have that structure? We do, and it's called a council. And okay. it's where the decisions are taken, as you know. Okay. And we have taken some decisions on it. Okay, all right. In terms of intelligence sharing? And in terms of intelligence sharing, uh, I think that uh, when we look at the, what we have done until now, we have gone a long way. Of course, we have to do more. And, I mean, having more intelligence sharing, uh, awareness sharing, the same evaluation of threats is still a challenge we have to face. It's mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. But we've made some, uh, I think, some, some very important uh, progresses. INCENT is, uh, I mean, uh, in the European institution, something which is very efficient, where we share many of our intelligence. And when we speak from regional crisis, from North Korea and to Iran, going to Africa, we do have more and more common material to share. Okay, let's. I'd be interested to see what our audience make of that, given the popular perception and what's reported in the press when situations and terror strikes, we find out after the effect that actually certain member states had information which wasn't shared. But let's come back to that in a moment. Um, Anna, if I can turn to you. Um, <clears throat> obviously, you, you sit in a key position in the parliamentary kind of almost democratic countable chamber, if you like. Um, and, you know, I think you, you've mentioned you have a bit of a reservation about this debate at this stage, which will be good to bring out to a certain extent. But what's your sense of um, the capacity to create something like a security, uh, a single security budget as a driving force in the context of the different developments that are happening right now in terms of CARD, PESCO, etc.? Because clearly in the past six months we've seen a kind of architecture being built to create some form of common framework. But what's, what's your view? Well, um, yeah, the kind of mis the, uh, mixed feelings I have about discussing uh, a common security budget is the same kind of feelings I have to participate in debates about the common European army. I guess this kind of discussions often are meant to scare people, namely people who are very attached to a notion of sovereignty as if sovereignty would solve them or defend them from anything, and namely for the kind of threats we are facing. In my opinion, indeed, as a member of the Subcommittee on Security and Defense, as also a member of our LIBE committee, dealing now coordinator for uh, the Inquiry Committee on Terrorism, 
I believe that uh, we, we need to understand that these kind of threats, we can only face them collectively, working together, working European. And these are threats that indeed are special because more and more they blur borders. I mean, they blur borders and what, what is an internal and external threat, what is, uh, um, uh, what is the mobilization of civilian and military, uh, so we need to work European. Uh, the European Parliament is very much persuaded of that, of that, even before the Council reached the conclusions that and is moving in the direction that now is moving, namely on PESCO. We have produced reports in that sense mm -hmm. uh, with concrete proposals. Uh, we, for instance, on the question, okay, you might have the political decision-making body, as you said, Ambassador, uh, uh, the, the, the political council, uh, the, but then... We have proposed that, for instance, that there would be a military permanent headquarters, things that I think we would indeed enhance our capacities to deliver on the political decisions that are made. Uh, so, uh, and yes, this will come to budget as well, mm -hmm. obviously. If we are moving in, in terms of PESCO, this will uh, entail decisions on, on PESCO. But uh, it's a more tactical question because... I think the important thing is that, indeed, we now move as many as we can on PESCO. PESCO, as it was said, is a very important tool. It doesn't uh, detract on capacities that we have, those of us who are members of NATO. It will only reinforce those capacities, but will give us, indeed, better capacities, more experience, and definitely more the strategic autonomy that the ambassador mentioned. And I think this is a very essential question at the moment when NATO is, I mean, let's face it, uh, our people from NATO might be in denial, our own people might be in denial, but the, the fact that Mr. Trump said NATO is obsolete, of course, has implications. And that's why, uh, in, indeed, we more than ever, we need to build the military, the, the European pillar uh, of security and defense. Our citizens are asking that. And having indeed this broader, this broader approach that is uh, uh, identifying the kind of threats we face that are that blur, blur the borders between what is external, what is internal, what is um, what is civilian, what is military, and we'll need budget. Mm -hmm. We'll need budget. We, I remember we had had recently uh, some intense debates in the European Parliament in funding, for instance, the European Defence Fund. Uh, which has been created in the question of even financing the pilot project that we actually promoted in the European Defence Agency. Uh, but we were able to, to move forward. Uh, many of the uh, questions raised in terms of money were, um, you know, are using the argument, oh, we need, we need uh, um, new money and not money that comes from uh, existing budgets. Yes, it is true. But I think the most important thing is that we need uh, better value for money, for the money that our taxpayers are already spending in the national defense budget is totally uncoordinated, often in a very wasteful exercise because they are totally uh, uh, uncoordinated or, or purely uncoordinated uh, and Often they are leading to overlappings, uh, uh, nothing, uh, equipment that is not, and capabilities that are not strategic. And 
by the way, very poor democratic control. Mm -hmm. This is the other element in which the European Parliament has been very uh, demanding, and I think rightly so. More money, uh, better uh, spending of the money that has already been spent, and I think we could get much better value for the money that our taxpayers are spending in these uncoordinated defense national budgets. But more money because, I mean, let's <clears throat> take, we, you mentioned terrorism. Can mention, mention cyber security? I mean, probably the biggest uh, threat to all of us is actually uh, critical infrastructure and the way they are now as well all dependent on cyber uh, cyber, um, you know, uh, management or uh, uh, systems. Uh, probably most of our member states, my country, Portugal, cannot simply afford, even if we would see this as a priority, we simply cannot afford. We need to work in cooperation with our partners mm -hmm. to actually have the, the means to indeed face the kind of threats we face. I mean, we, we commissioned a piece, a think piece, which you will have in your packs, which is corporate security requires a, a, requires a budget. And in that, the author, Mike Ryan, um, refers to the fact that actually one of the issues is that we don't actually understand what we spend on defence and security. We don't have an inventory at a member state level, which is, your po which is what you're pointing to. But given where we are in Europe at the moment, and this is not trying to be cynical and defeatist, but do you, are you hopeful that we can get to a position where member states are going to be prepared to have some sort of inventory check on defence and security spend? Because you're right. If you don't know what you're spending on, you don't know what value you're getting, and therefore you don't know what the gaps are and where you're duplicating figures, doesn't it? I think we need know a lot because we have the European Defence Agency who has done remarkable work, in my opinion, in indeed identifying many of the gaps and the failures uh, of, of capabilities and equipment that we absolutely need. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, uh, yes, at some point, member states will have to face, will have to be ready, and probably PESCO will be a step in the right direction to make member states indeed realize that many of the capacities they have are totally unnecessary, that those capacities that they need, they simply don't have and will only have them if they cooperate and work European to develop R&T that is necessary, take in the field of, of, of for instance, cyber capacities. Um, and, uh, and also um, that they are prepared to actually shed areas that are a tremendous source of waste and no real value for money in terms of defense of our citizens. Sorry to say, but the nuclear equipments that at least that two member states have, in my opinion, are a tremendous waste. They are no deterrent. Uh, you have the biggest experts from all sorts of the, uh, from the Europe and from the US actually saying that. We, there's a huge slice of the money that taxpayers are supposedly paying for security and defense that are a waste and that ought to be better up applied if indeed we would apply them in the security equipments and in the capacities that we uh, now identify as necessary to respond to the... Okay, Anna, I mean, you, you made a powerful faced. statement there about nuclear not being a deterrent, which kind of, obviously, there's a kind of received wisdom about it since Second World War. That it's it, an area where... And it's hugely states diverge. Absolutely. But, I mean, it's always important to be reflective and evolve with our context and our times, because we are living in a situation where digital has transformed our concept of defence and security. From your perspective, what is a deterrent? What would be the deterrent, then? If you were to invest in a deterrent, what would it be? Well, 
Well, um, really I tough think question. more than I know ever, that. more than ever, we live in a world. It's not just the economy; it's the world we live in. Uh, all all uh, areas depending on the digital, and definitely this is an area where we are very much unprepared, okay. uh, and not and not even aware of the challenges. So, I would say first and foremost, this ought to be the priority in terms of assistance to defenders to protect the critical infrastructure that is there at the mercy of a terrorist attack, of hybrid war, or, okay. or, or, or I mean, any kind of war uh, 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 that, that... So, uh, in my opinion, okay. that's, that ought to be the priority. Okay, all right. Thank you, Anna. We'll, and we'll come back to some of the points that you've raised, I'm sure, for, in the conversation. Christian, can, you talk, can I turn to you? Um, one might suggest that actually, uh, and it's, it's a truism to a certain extent, that post 9-11 and our experiences, not least just in the past five years, have re-questioned or kind of fundamentally posed questions about internal, external security and defence issues. The, the need for uh, working on community cohesion as well as development as well as, you know, looking at a whole range of budgets within a government. We know governments are really poor at working across the board. What, hope, what, what, what are your views on actually what will be, what are the gains that we can make in this territory and, and would the notion of a single budget approach, even at a member state level, let's say, let's forget the Europe thing, but actually at a member state level, we've seen the reaction in the UK to one of the ministers there suggesting that yeah. with an outcry, but give me your, your, your perspective. Um, yeah, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, I'll uh, definitely avoid the new acronyms of European defence like PESCO, CARD and EDF because I think the topic is indeed much broader that we have to mm. talk about here. Okay. Um, if you think about what the policymakers would drive into a budget, I mean the first assessment of a policymaker, I think, is uh, if I go for a single security budget, does it increase the budget or does it lower the budget, first of all? And who is in control of the budget? Is it me or is it somebody else? Um, so it's a question of who benefits from it and not uh, the question of security is put first. I think, therefore, budget may not be the right point of entry, but it's about talking about the security value of something. And budget is the wrong point of entry. Why? Uh, first of all, uh, you have an input debate, which leads you immediately to the question of does size matter or does output matter? I would always say output matters. And I would hope that the European Union... Uh, is much more clever on this debate than NATO is, because NATO is, you know, has proposed a debate about input, which they now basically uh, can uh, get the fruits from it. But I think as the European Union is playing with more money and taxpayers' money, it's more uh, important to talk about the, uh, the impact that you have with the money. So that's the first problem. second problem is these budgets are incomparable. Mm. I mean, uh, kind of... Um, a minimum price for a tank is a minimum price for a tank, which you need to have. Do, how do you want this? compare this to a police car? How do you want to compare this to investment in uh, uh, social resilience? How do you make this comparable? Because you will have all these budget discussions at the end of the day. Mm. Um, how do you compare wages? Uh, because sometimes you have civil servants, sometimes you have people who are just, you know, uh, are uh, uh, doing it for, uh, on, a, on a private basis. So all these things will basically pop up for somebody who do budgets on all these things. Um, and you can't show that an increase of one euro produces one more 
element of security in all these things, which is a typical problem of public goods, that you cannot basically show that you can increase security by spending, uh, by spending more or spending less to all these things. And last but not least, the spending logic brings you into the question from those who do procurement all across the board, not only in defense but also in all the security ways, how do I spend the budget at the end of the year? So it's not about what do I need for security, but how do I spend the budget? Will, taking defense uh, example, will the army get new tanks because we have some money left? That's the wrong logic. Um, and also what you do is you propose to the suppliers that there will be money available. So basically what you do is you increase the prices for security, at least from the supplier side, because the prices will go up. We have the first effects on the defense side. So I would urge you to be much more clever on these things. If we talk about security value and, and persuading bureaucracies to be more clever on this spending, uh, I think, first of all, you have to notice that bureaucracies have been that since the last 10,000 years. So what we basically embark on is a battle for the next 10,000 years. But I'm happy to start today. Uh, and Good. I would propose a very pragmatic way into this, um, which is not possibly a single budget, but a cooperative budget. If you want to have cooperative security as something where actors cooperate then it's about how do you make uh, not a world government, but to take existing governments into a situation which forces them to cooperate. And I have to admit, I think that bureaucracies you have to force, because otherwise they, they won't move. Mm -hmm. We have some examples uh, and some experiences with cooperative budgets. And I would I propose, just as a point for discussion, let's say that all those ministries which are relevant for security can get 60% of their budget only if they spend it in cooperation with another ministry on security. So if you want to have a budget discussion, this would be a way to force the ministries into more cooperation. Whether it creates more output is a second question. Nice. So therefore, the inventory is an, is, is an important point. Mm -hmm. But the inventory is not how much money you have. It's basically how much security you can provide. So there I would basically say um, try where you have experience with, things, with these things in Sweden and within the UK enforcing uh, governments into this week, starting with this also in Germany, where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the Ministry of Defense are forced to spend a little bit of money jointly. The size matters. If you say you cannot survive as a ministry without being cooperative, they're going beyond the 50%, uh, then I think you can, you can induce real change. But you, of course, have to be uh, aware that this will cause a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, challenges uh, from the ministries and from the people who are there. But I think this is the, the way of uh, getting towards a question of impact. Because at the end of the day, you will also have to show, has the spending an impact, or have the cooperative budgets and their spending an impact on security? And there you still uh, will struggle with the, how do you show that an impact has been made on security? Because, I mean, it's easy to show how much money we have wasted. If you take the example of Mali, how much money the European Commission has put into it, and at the end of the day, the French had to, do, to embark on an, on an operation, you question which kind of, you know, what was the better spending on it at the end of the day? Where do you, I mean, you make obviously very sensible points that actually inputs only focus on inputs and not outcomes. And obviously, we desperately need an outcome-focused approach to what our future peace, security, defence issues are in Europe. But that would require us to have greater foresight capability, greater sharing of information, and better sense of trust between folk to actually say, for Europe, these are the five 
things that we would like to. I mean, even in, in, in Germany, we know that, you know, uh, in the Bundestag, uh, a n- prominent politician said, it's not about the number of um, military that we have, it's actually what kind of peace we would want to secure in an area that we're intervening in. And in terms of what does it mean in terms of stability from zero to five, that should actually drive our intervention. But we're not there yet. I mean, what's no, your no we're, we're definitely not. You're, you're absolutely right. And um, I struggle to... to um, to find a way into it, I think it needs quite a lot of work. But I'll give you one example why I'm struggling. Uh, we have two different approaches to, let's say, public security or public impressing, impressing the public about counterterrorism. There's a French way and a German way. The French way is to putting 10,000 soldiers on the ground, mm. which I would now assume it increases at least the public perception of security. In mm. Germany, if you would do the same you basically lower the security because we're not used to it. So there are two different approaches. Mm-hmm. Also to the instruments, I don't criticize the way the French or others do it basically by using military or power, military forces uh, for internal security. I can only tell you we can't do this, not only for constitutional reasons, but also for the perception that would basically mean. So we are back to the question of national security cultures, which also then drives to your larger point, mm-hmm. which is what are the five points we want to make? I mean, we possibly... Uh, in Germany have five completely different priorities to our partners, but we have to work with our partners. And if a budget basically equalizes the priorities, I wouldn't be very sure about that. But you're also a member of the European Union. And so going back to Nicholas's point, you know, European Council is surely where this conversation should be happening, which is not about numbers and military might and agility, but actually what are the five outcomes we're looking for, for peace and defence and security over the next five years even. Let's not go for ten, let's go for five years to drive it. Is that where that debate should be happening? Um, I mean, Brussels hopefully is a consensus machinery, so you would expect that this comes out of it. But again, if if we talk about a comprehensive approach and all these things, the, the experiences that we have go far beyond the European Union. I mean, this is not... I'm sorry for the Brussels bubble here, but this is not where the EU is the most important player. If you talk about security in Africa, that is the United Nations. And there are many more players in this game who are independent of the European Union. There are much more spoilers in the game who don't care about the European Union as, uh, unless it's about their money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are many more things which, of okay. course, complicate the kind of output measure on these things, which brings us to the essential point. At the end of the day, whatever you do, on these things is a political decision, a deeply political decision, which has to be kind of carried by at least a majority in the country which is legitimate. Indeed, but you have to, you can only bite off what you can chew to a certain extent, right? So looking at that global perspective, absolutely, but actually it's Europe that matters in this context. So in this conversation, actually, if it gets its act together better, this is about Europe having a better integrated common defense agenda and peace agenda and security agenda and surely that's where we if we start from there then then the byproducts are the it's bilateral relationships and it's international relationships surely but that's not a question that's a statement um, let me move on to amy last but not least um i suppose you represent that that part of the agenda in this debate where you know um, there's real concern that by pooling budgets or sharing budgets in this way will reduce the independence and the ethos of international and humanitarian aid. And, I mean, it's a debate that should be had, absolutely. And we know what's happened in the UK, uh, obviously, uh, most recently, but elsewhere it's a raging debate by international aid agencies thinking, no, don't do this because actually you're just going to make us into instruments of war and terrorism, anti-terrorism and etc. And so our underpinning originating purpose will be removed. What's your, what's your take on this? What's your view? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I pretty much agree with everything you were just saying there. <laughs> okay. I think, uh, so, awesome. I don't mean to answer that um, question here, but I, yeah. No, I mean, I think, you know, there's real concern in the development sector about aligning defence security and development too closely. I think the two, and, you know, as many others have rightly said, the two are absolutely interconnected. They are interdependent to an extent. But it's really important to remember that they're not actually the same thing. And I see, I hear people talking sometimes. I saw this a little bit around the OECD DAC in the, the last little bit around how we're sort of defining aid and people talk about peacekeeping and peace building as if they're the same thing and they're really very much not and I think you know there's a bunch of good reasons why and I suppose for me sort of bad lines when we think about this stuff you know we spent a lot of time thinking and working around humanitarian principles around things like independence humanity neutrality and these are really important and it's about really basic obvious things like safety and security of staff in the field and that matters not just because those are people who become targets when we get when our defence and development are too tightly tied together, they're seen as justifiable targets, and they're also seen as kind of agents of foreign governments' agenda in country, which definitely puts them at risk. And that puts aid operations at risk. So if we're talking about wanting to respond in a crisis, yes, we, need, we might need some sort of forceful intervention to help build some peace and security and stability, but we need to keep that very, very distinct from what we're doing around the development and particularly around the crisis response end because the more aid workers are at risk, for example, and this is just one of the kind of challenges, I think, but the more they're at risk, the less likely we are to have good, efficient, effective aid and crisis response operations. So, yeah, we need to think about coherence. I think coherence is not the same thing as kind of even alignment, I wouldn't even talk about it necessarily in that way, so making sure we kind of get how intertwined and interconnected these things are, but kind of keeping those, those really clear dividing lines between what we're doing when we're working on development and what we're doing when we're working on defence and security. And I think it's also pretty easy, and this is something I think we're really struggling with in the UK at the moment around, you're talking about kind of joint pooled funding, and we have something called the Conflict Stability and Security Fund, yeah. which lots of different government departments pull from, and it's supposed to both deliver UK national security and deliver development and actually it's turned out that's been quite hard to do and there's been some you know I think quite fair and justifiable criticism of how they're balancing those two things um, and I know they are trying quite hard to do a good job at it but I kind of wonder I don't wonder I think I know which one wins if it's a question about will this deliver more UK national security or will it deliver more development I think the national security thing tends to win and when we're talking about aid money that's a little bit concerning. So I think that kind of tightly linking those things together has given us some challenges already. Is it? But I, I get all that you're saying, and I, I know that people who feel, you know, who are protagonists in this area since, you know, the past 100 years, but particularly in the past 60 years, would, would espouse what you have, right, about the independence issue. Um, but given where we find ourselves, and if you're in a crisis situation and you're the subject of that, witnessing a coordination of... Uh, defence support, let's say, and aid on your front door or in your camp where you haven't got a house is more securing, potentially, than not? Isn't it time that we rethought? Because like, we don't... I mean, people have always said that actually... Uh, and Nicholas, you said it quite, quite effectively, that, you know, without development, you can't have security, without security, you can't have, et cetera. And you've got that dynamic, but we don't settle on definitions of what we mean now about, about I mean, is it time now to rethink our fundamental principles about you know, humanitarian and international aid, given where we find ourselves now? I mean, I think this has always been an issue. This is not, this is not a new challenge. We've no. been having conflicts going on for certainly the time we've been doing kind of formal official aid. I think this is not a new challenge. But I think one of the things we have learned in that time is what happens when you, you don't keep that distinction. Mm -hmm. So yes, coherence. I mean, the idea that 
the military should be in or the police should be in doing security stuff and have no awareness of what aid or humanitarian or development workers are doing over here is obviously, you know, kind of ridiculous. But coherence and communication are not the same thing as aligning. And I think if aid and development are seen to be serving defence, particularly donors' defence or national security interests, I think that undermines things. And I think when I talk to people, I think they are concerned about that kind of stuff. They don't want to have our national security kind of imposed down on them or our aims and objectives, which are more about securing our own future than about securing their future. Mm -hmm. They don't see that as good aid. They might see that as good UK national security or French national security or whatever, but they're not going to see it as good. Mm. It's really genuinely helping. So you them. think actually we're never going to change the dynamic where, and I use the unfortunate phrase given current situations, that security will always trump development? I don't know if we can. Yeah, I don't know if we can kind of defeat that, mm. but I think actually one of the things that has been important in making sure that we do as, you know, the richest countries in the world, as we do do a little bit of both of those things, is making sure that we have clearly delineated development budgets and development objectives and agencies and people working on that stuff. And then in a separate but connected, and we've got people working on things like national security. So it wouldn't be about the money, it'd be more about the kind of tactical relationships on the ground is what you're suggesting. So don't pull budgets, but actually pull tactics and how you communicate on yeah. the Yeah, and I mean, I think, I think there's definitely an argument for, you know, donor government agencies or donor governments just in general. You know, you have this challenge just across government. Getting the entirety of all of the UK government departments to talk to each other is not an easy thing anyway. No. So definitely doing that better in incredibly complicated, fast-moving humanitarian situations, definitely better communication, a better kind of shared strategy, but okay. not, yeah... Connected. All right. Thank you all. I'm going to open it up to the audience. I know some of you might want to come back to some of what you've heard already. But this is your opportunity now to ask questions, pose queries, um, and or you know your own particular view on what you've heard so far. So I welcome uh, you to, in the usual fashion, raise your hand, uh, say who you are, uh, and my usual plea: no speeches and grandstanding short statements or questions. And if you've got a particular thing you want to ask one member of the panel, say who it is. So, lady here. Justin, the mic's on its way to you. Thank you very much. So, um, I, I'm coming for the research and scientific side. I have studied physics and informatics. I'm only citizen. And, and I have a very important question as normal citizen. Um, if Russia attack Europe, what is very possible, uh, all your European defense agency, all your budget, all your, um, I don't know, European army, they have very few chance to win against only if you are in NATO and only if you are allied with U.S., if you like or not, Trump. Trump. So uh, my question is, if you have an European army, you want to keep uh, to stay in NATO or you want to keep uh, to stay uh, uh, the same side uh, like U.S.? If you have a second last question is, that you have an European uh, defense. Uh, defense. Uh, how is uh, how how you want to 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 have a, a boss, to have a general? How how you want to 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 manage this? It's not very clear. Okay. And yeah. uh, well, and uh, I just... what I would like to say, um, if you want to have uh, to put two or three countries together first. 
to put their army to have some military exercise together and harmonize their armament first, and you have some cells like that, uh, then you can uh, build uh, quickly another European uh, uh, defense. Okay, so in that, what you're saying, you've, I was going to ask you what you think, but I think you've told us what you think, actually, that actually small steps by you know, collaborating and learning by doing. So we'll come back to, your, um, uh, to the panel in a moment. Um, this gentleman, there was a gentleman with a hand. And this lady here and the gentleman here. So, ah, so lady here, over there, third row, second from the left. Yep. Hello, my name is Delia. I am um, a Peace Program Assistant at the Quaker Council for European Affairs. Uh, so today we've talked about the changing context um, of security and the need for new tools to respond to crises, such as PESCO, uh, which would allow for short-term action um, from member states. And I'm wondering from the perspective of peace-building research, which shows the need for um, long-term engagements and um, the need to address root causes of conflict, what might be the strategic thinking around addressing these longer term, this longer-term approach to security and potentially uh, community-based responses? Okay, all right. There's a political uh, issue there, obviously, but I'll come, you know, let's, let's see how our panel responds rather than me responding to you. Um, gentleman here, just the gentleman there? No, 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 just there. Yes. Okay, thank you very much. My name is Václav Jiroska. I'm coming from Czech Technical University, and I am previous member of uh, Program Committee for Security Research in FP7. And I have a very simple question, trying to move it back to the budget. In the security, there are two major points, the time and efficiency. Do you think that the single security budget will decrease the time of reaction and increase the efficiency or not? And if, if yes, how much? Thank you. Mm, very specific. I'm not sure our panel, the panelists can give you a specific answer to that question, but hey, let's have a go. And the lady there in the glasses there. That'll be, and I'll come back to the panel. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Carolina McLaughlin. I work with uh, Transparency International's Defense and Security Program. Mm -hmm. um, I've got two questions. One is for Amy on the sort of development and defense interface. Um, I'm actually going to stand up so you, you can see me. Um, so you know, sometimes I. I sympathize with your argument a lot, but there are situations sometimes where if you don't engage with defense and security, whatever you do on development risks being lost. And just as one example, South Sudan, for instance, where donors had supported the, the um, South Sudanese healthcare, education, etc., for years on end, only for that, that money being freed up from the Sudanese budget, being redirected to an unreformed and bloated defense sector. So in that case, when, when the goal of defense engagement is to actually you know, less the train and equip side of things and more institution building, more reform, do you see links there? And how, how, how do you see that panning out? The se second question is about democratic oversight. And again, I think that this, this is right on point when it comes to even national um, member state budgets. But if we do have you know, an, an pooled single security budget, be that on a member state level or on the EU le level or even at a NATO level, and that, that, that's also a, side, a kind of side question, would that single security budget be for both the EU uh, and NATO, and how do, do member states deal with that? Um, but... What your, principal role, question. your principal question here. Uh, what role do you see for EU institutions in terms of oversight um, as compared to national mem member state institutions? 
Okay, thank you. Can I start with you on that? Because, you know, that, that kind of cuts into the heart of that development, defence, security debate. Yeah, nice easy question to get started. I know, sorry. Um, no, I mean, I think, of course, it's absolutely right. The defence development peace nexus is, is challenging, but obviously it's something we need to think about. And I suppose that's what I meant when I said these things are interconnected and intertwined and interdependent, but they're not the same thing. So when we talk about good peace-building activities, we might be talking more about, you know, actually areas that are really largely underfunded, like human rights advocates, women's rights advocates, making sure that we're protecting children in conflict zones or post-conflict zones. You know, these are spaces that are really actually could do with a little bit more support, both political and financial. So yes, we need to be thinking as well about the kind of hard security end, because you're right, conflict can wipe away decades of development gains and absolutely no time whatsoever. My point is just that I think we need to keep a I can't think of a better way to say it, then we do need to keep a little bit of a dividing line, sort of like a firewall. You know, information can pass through, but it gets a little filtered and cleaned up on the way through. We can't have the two being seen as, as really tightly tied together or aligned, because that does create problems, you know, very real problems in the field as well as, I think, at home. So, yeah, things like reform and institution building, working actually around things like human rights training with armed actors in a developing country, these things are actually perfectly sensible. It's just, you know, kind of making sure that, again, we're not thinking just about the hard security end. Or I suppose in some sense people are worried a little bit about seeing some of our, our very small development budgets diverted into more hard security activities. Or just that line where we start to sort of we start to pretend that they are the same thing when we really know they're not. It's not the same doing activities with, you know, young people at risk of being... Um, Radicalized is very different to hard intelligence gathering or policing activities. And I think these are important distinctions that if we want development to work, we need to remember. And if we want public security to work, we need to remember that as well. What about that point from, uh, from, the, from the Quaker, uh, Quaker Council uh, about, you know, the capacity for development aid to focus on more of the long-term things? Because it hasn't been shown to do that. Yeah, and I think this is probably one of the issues we have around the kind of humanitarian to development uh -huh. transition. You know, again, people see them as kind of two separate things. And one of the things people talked about a lot in Istanbul a couple of years ago around the World Humanitarian Summit was how do we do a much better sense of kind of transition and investing in things like resilience. Um, and I think those are very different things in different places. But a lot of that is about getting at the sort of drivers of conflict um, as much as it is about dealing with the kind of effects of it. So I think... Yes, we should be doing more of that. And if we look at, you know, the SDGs, which we only agreed a couple of years ago, in SDG 16, or I know a lot of people in the kind of peace and conflict sector are talking about SDG 16+. plus. That's what I meant, I suppose. There's a lot of stuff, actually, that's really could do with a little bit more focus, which is both about money and political will. Okay. All right. I'm going, Nick, Nick, Nicholas, can I ask you to address... Um both points, because which are somewhat connected from uh, our, our, our uh, in, you know, committed citizen, as you've, as you've said, stated, uh, around Russia to, uh, to attack, let's uh, say, in terms of our capacity capability, would you know, uh, the army um, notion, a common army, be the, the saving grace, or actually do we need to take a different approach about aligning certain strategic areas and have a momentum-building approach? Uh, but then also about the budget question. That, you know, will it lead to, uh, if it's time and efficiency, will it lead to increasing both? And you can have a shot at the time question in terms of by how much. But it's up to you. Thanks. Uh, for the first question, uh, um, I think that there is something on which we have to be very precise. There is no European army. 
we are not creating a European army. A European army will come perhaps for generations which will follow us, not mine for sure, I'm too old for it, but perhaps the next ones uh, we'll see, but there is no federal state and absolutely no European army for the time being. This is the first thing. The second thing is that for all those European states who are member of NATO, and it's, it's very clearly stated in the treaties, it is still NATO which is providing collective defense. So here, the question, and when we speak about creating PESCO, creating something else, it's not about collective defense. It's not about what is going to happen if uh, Russia attacks, because if Russia attacks, NATO is here. And this is the role of NATO. The question is that we have other, other challenges in the world. It's not only uh, Russia. It's also what is happening in Africa. And we know that it's going to have some consequences in the whole of Europe. I was very struck by the fact that uh, when in, 2000, when, uh, in 2010 we, uh, we had the first discussions on Africa, many of the member states were not even concerned. It was very, very difficult, and it's understandable. I mean, French, Portuguese, Spanish, Italians have an experience of Africa, where it is, what, what is at stake. They have a past, which is not always a good one, and mostly a bad one, but... It is some, uh, some, some, something for a Baltic state, and we can imagine, at that time, it was very, very far. What is happening now, and what is, I think, here very important, and come back to what uh, you were asking uh, at the beginning. Are we sharing elements? Are we sharing intelligence? We are sharing intelligence, of course. We are sharing uh, more and more. We are having more and more vital interests. And there is one proof of it, is that at the beginning, when we had the first EU so-called military missions in Mali and even in Central Africa, you had only the French and a few other member states. Today, when you look in those missions, you have 22 member states. It shows that it's more and more uh, an interest which is totally, uh, I think, shared by many of the member states. And many of the member states are having now more and more the impression that, yes, there are going to be consequences in their own country if they don't act. For your second question, uh, I didn't advocate a single security budget. So I don't know what is exactly a single security budget for my own part. I think that security and defense are two things which are not the same. Very difficult to mix them together uh, from a theoretic point of view, perhaps, but uh, I'm only a a practitioner, I, I work on what I can. And here, I am not sure that this is the main question. The main question is not do we have enough tools. The main question is for Europeans to act and to be efficient, to know and to have value for money, as you say. Where are our vital interests? Are they common? Where are we going to act? How do we, how do we evaluate the threats? And third, do we have a military or, I mean, an intervention doctrine which is common and, per, and permits us to do the same thing uh, in, uh, in the same countries. Okay. I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned about 2010 because, actually, uh, my, 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 my question is, are we now more prepared to accept foresight information? Because in 2010, we knew what was going to happen in Africa. It was just a political blind spot. 
but we knew about the population growth. We knew it then. We know it now. We know what's going to happen in the next. We know what's going to happen in the next 10 years in terms of population growth. We know what the demographics are. We know what the city anchors are going to be, and we know how climate change is going to likely affect it. Therefore, the impact on, on Europe. How does that fare in terms of how we are now? How is the European Council at this moment thinking about that long-term uh, foresight capability in terms of looking at it? I think that today uh, things have changed. Uh, what we have to do to today, and the more and more what we are working on, is not only giving a response when the crisis is there. It's the possibility to anticipate the crisis. Absolutely. It's the possibilities, and here, I mean, we still have a lot to do, to work, and this was one of the questions which was also asked. How do we work on prevention of conflicts, mm. mediation of conflicts? What are here our capacities to act in that field? It's very underdeveloped for the time being. How do we help third countries to respond themselves to, this, to their own security? And there, and if I can, just can make a quick uh, remark on the firewalls you were uh, aiming about between uh, development and, uh, and security, it's true that it's two different things, but it's a very virtual wall. In that sense that you can have some actions in the security field that can help development. Where do you put them? In the, on the development side or on the security side? Okay. So the, the border is a little bit blurred. Mm. But also equally, I mean, our 1,700 participants on the global online platform, Debating Series Plus, majority of them felt that actually in this day and age, the distinction between defence and security is no longer... Uh, when they think about what they've experienced on the ground... They don't make that distinction at all, and actually it's, perhaps it's time to think differently, but I'll, I'll come back to you on that. Anna, do you want to kind of... You're on the, you're on the subcommittee, and that point that was made about focusing on the long term, yes. what, I mean, is, have you had the capacity to think about actually how do you skew policy thinking and therefore potentially budgeting around focusing on more long term? Yes, I, I want to focus on the long term, but at the same time, I mean, in the long term, we are all dead. Um, and uh, I worry sure. more about the short term. Okay. Do we have the need, what we need to face the current threats? And yes, I mean, if the long term means the, the strategic, uh, uh, what are we there for? What is our role in the world? Uh, what do we want military and security capacities for? I don't want those capacities to embark in an adventure like the invasion of Iraq by the Bush administration. No, I want a military doctrine that actually sets clear limits in terms of international law for uh, intervention by the EU if that is necessary. Uh, um, but I don't want either. And, and that brings me to the, de the debate about the defense and uh, development budget. By the way, I don't believe that we will have, we, don't, we will not have in the short term European army, I concur. We will not have in the short term a single budget for defense. We might have, and I did indeed, I favor that, cooperative approaches for, the, uh, for financing defense. We need that uh, in view of the, the needs, the threats, the, 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 the challenges. Uh, but, uh, so it's different things. But, I mean, uh, I do understand the concerns of the, the people working in development that they do not want to see the budget diverted, but at the same time they acknowledge there is this nexus, security and development. I mean, but my concern is also, what is the development budget for? Is it to enable and to pay a lot of kleptocracies to go on? Because that's where 
uh, that's been happening. That's what has been happening. Is it to actually pay, uh, you know, militia to uh, prevent migrants to come from Europe in Libya? Under the, the, I mean, because, I mean, that is, the, pro, the question is, what do we do with the development budget? Are we indeed working with that budget for securing the, uh, the sustainable development goals? And that requires investing in civil societies, investing in accountability, investing in their own capacities, investing in less and more fair trade, and for, for instance, less illicit flows of capital that actually come from those countries through our financial system and are invested in our you know, property and so on. This is the questions about the development budget. Uh, the, de the defense budget, in my opinion... Doesn't that apply to this? Doesn't that apply to defense security as well? Of course. And that's where the question of democratic accountability Absolutely. comes. And scrutiny. And, I mean, look, it's very poor what's going on in most of our member states. Maybe in the Bundestag you have some scrutiny. Yes, uh, probably it's probably the country where you have some scrutiny of the defense budget. Good, uh, uh, for good... Uh, uh, with, but, but most of the other member states... Have not, there is tremendous corruption going on in our uh, national defense budgets, in equipment that is w w bought, and it is not, not necessary. And I will not mention, uh, I mean, uh, tremendous corruption. That's exactly why we need uh, that accountability, that scrutiny. Should be done by national parliaments, could be done as well by the European Parliament. And having some kind of common funding for defense would, in my opinion, indeed enhance our capacities okay. to exercise the scrutiny. And then, of course, w one thing that the European Parliament has been saying, for instance, review the so-called Atena mechanism. I mean, the Atena mechanism is the funding of the EU that would allow, enable uh, that uh, operations such as CSDP operations would be immediately uh, started up without having the member states to cough the money. Uh, if, if the logic would not be the current logic, which is the, the NATO logic, costs lie where they fall, countries, for instance, like mine, that have capacities in men and women in arms could contribute more, while others who don't want to put, to put there the men and women in arms would eventually pay. So that is one particular area where the European Parliament has been making very concrete proposals. So, that would it's, indeed so it's almost like a, the equivalent of the European Social Fund for Defence, the European no, it, Defence Fund. It, it's, it's, it's about getting the best of all and understanding that we have common needs okay. and that these common needs d depend on investment, for instance, on R&T. By the way, lots of stuff is actually dual-use stuff. Some years ago, I mean, we had a big fight in the European Parliament to save Galileo because at that point, many people were not even accepted get that Galileo had military applications and it was just privately... <laughs> and it, we had to, to, to find common funding from the, the European budget to save Galileo. And it's a totally crucial uh, piece in, the, in any pretense of strategic autonomy okay. by the EU. So we have come a long way. We still have a lot to go. We are not going to have a, a common army or a European army next, uh, next year or a, a common budget, but we need to find ways to progressively, indeed, put the money together identify the capabilities that are absolutely okay. necessary that we will not achieve if member states continue to work uncoordinatedly in, in security and defense. Thank you.
Thank you for that impassioned uh, plea for, you know, for, for, for working differently, which I think many as a residents. Uh, but, Kristen, do you want to add anything to what you've heard so far? Any points you want to make? No, I would be happy to take a second round. OK, excellent. Right, thank you very much. Um, you had a number of hands up in the audience. So, right, lady here. Gentleman here, you've been patient as well. Yes. Those of you on the right-hand flank, don't be shy. These are all on the left-hand flank for me. Go on. I guess uh, I'm in the right spot. <laughs> Hi, my name is Alice Stolmeyer. I'm Executive Director of Defending Democracy. Um, I have a question for Ana Gomez. Um, I fully agree that in the era of hybrid war, a larger part of the security budget should go to digital. In your view, would that include countering online disinformation? Okay, very specific question. Thank you very much. Gentlemen, yeah, I will come to you. Gentleman here, he's been very patient. Thank you. Nicholas Nowaki from uh, Martin Center. Um, very interesting discussion. Um, and it seems to me that there's an understanding in the panel that there would not be uh, a single defense budget, but this sort of uh, cooperative uh, EU defense budget. My question is, how would this cooperative defense budget be funded? I mean, would it perhaps be something in the style of the Athena mechanism that was uh, just mentioned, uh, which would mean that member states would contribute uh, to it annually uh, according to the level of their gross national income, or would, would, uh, would there perhaps be another type of arrangement? And then to... Uh, yeah, I think that, that's it. Thanks. Okay, thank you very much. Gentleman just there, thank you, yes. Thank you. My name is Mr. Hutter. I'm the president of the Latin American Center in Austria. One question. Uh, the U.S. is spending 600 billion U.S. dollars for defense and the member states of NATO, the other ones, about 250 billion a year. Okay. How is it with these figures? Can we share money from that for BESCO? Thank you. Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Lady there. Hi, uh, my name is Nadja Minzeman. I work for the, AS, for the Aerospace and Defense Industries Association of Europe. And I would like to ask how you would propose to reconcile the technological specifications and IPR requirements between security and defense in terms of procurement and capability development uh, under the proposed idea of having a, a defense fund that encompasses both security and defense. What's your view? My view is that view? they're not compatible. Okay, all right. All right. Um, Anna, can we go directly to you? And again, be brief, because we meet, we've only have uh, another 10 minutes or so left. So if you were to, I mean, that question was very, very specific. Would the digital focus encompass yes, disinformation? Yes, it's already, I mean, we are already spending money to counter uh, uh, online propaganda. Uh, and disinformation, and uh, some people even consider that there is indeed a, we are already under attack by powers like the use, for instance, uh, RT and Sputnik, and who actually pay uh, populist move, move, movements such as uh, Le Pen or uh, sorry, Le Pen or uh, or uh, or uh, the IFD in Germany or Brexit uh, to influence the, the the political debates in our member states. Uh, yes, so therefore, but uh, when we, we look at the, um, for instance, uh, the, the way, for instance, the terrorist threat uh, and is evolving, uh, uh, we see that much of the, 
the, the, the there is also a recognition that uh, through the the online uh, there is a detection, and so we we need to actually adapt to what is going on. But I believe that indeed countering radicalization and disinformation uh, in the social media and uh, through the media is a, an absolute uh, uh, must. Uh, where indeed we should uh, have a joint effort. And in something is already being done, more should, could be done. I believe as well that um, the question on own resources is very important. And it's not just own resources for defense. We, for defense. we need more own resources for the Union, including for the challenges in security and defense, even if we look at it from this angle of the cooperative financing. Uh, where do we get it? I mean, member states uh, have plenty of ways to actually cuff the money that is necessary, collect the money that is necessary. i just give you two examples. One, CCCTB, Common Corporate Tax Base uh, approach that the Commission has proposed to actually go for taxation, fair taxation for big corporations, namely the corporations that operate in the digital and that to this day don't really pay taxes in the EU or elsewhere. Uh, that's, uh, that's an area where, in my opinion, we could get a lot of money. Financial transactions. I mean, in 11 member states, including Germany and France, actually a couple of years ago proposed a financial transaction tax. And then things didn't happen. We need indeed a PESCO or, or a, a something okay. like that to operate in the field of taxation because we would then get the, the resources, national and own resources, to face the security and defense challenges that in this moment uh, we can't finance because we simply are letting the money flow into the tax havens. Thank you. Christian, do you want to come back on your notion of a cooperative budget and how it would work, given what the, you know, the questions that were asked about how it would work? How would you finance it? What would the mechanism be for making it work? Look, I think there are, there are first, second and third order questions. Uh, how do you finance it would be, I guess, second or third order question. Uh, first of all, you would have to kind of come to a conclusion, at least on the national level, what do you mean by security? That sounds rather academic, but at the end of the day, uh, you can have what, what, you, what we would call an all-encompassing definition of security, where what you do in your neighborhood as charity, whatever, is part of security. Um, and, you know, this spans towards uh, um, high-intensity military operations. This is, of course, not very helpful definition of what security is. And then the second-order question is the question about time and efficiency. So can we... Can we hope that things get better? So can we give a political reasoning to, to improve things if we go for, a, some, for something which is a rather technical thing? I mean, mm. kind of, you know, fusing and reallocating budgets is something which is, which is an art on the one hand, science on the other hand, but at the end of the day, it's a rather technical thing. Um, and then the third other question is about, you know, how, what can we do with Athena and, and uh, how do we manage the IPRs? If you would reach that level, I guess we would be, or some people at least, um, at least would, be, would be happy on that. I think that the sourcing of, of that, uh, you, could, you could define principles on, on how it should be sourced, but these are kind of, you know, common places like has to be accountable and all these things. So I would, I would more struggle um, about the first and second order questions, which is, 
can we show that this improves the situation? Mm -hmm. And are we willing, because of that, to take up the battle and make a decisive battle out of it? Is this the thing that really improves the security of Europe? Um, I currently don't have an answer to it, because possibly because I'm, I'm a scientist, I always like to say so. We basically have to go back to the books to a certain extent here and see what we know, because we don't know. Right, let's put it, in, put it as, as a kind of proposal. What we would need to have is a proper, which means also an independent assessment of all the operations and engagements, so the inventory that is there in security, and make it accessible. How do you measure, if you want to put it in a simple question, how do you measure security, which is a highly complicated question, uh, at, least for, at least for me. And uh, maybe I'll leave it there. Maybe that's my last point, so I would, of course, make one point, at least, on the defense side. Of course we're going to have a European army, but we will not decide on it. It will simply happen by accident because, uh, you know, if you look around in Europe, who is capable of doing something on the national level? And will this national capability improve or decrease in, the f decrease in the future? So this is basically the European army in the making. And the more you concentrate on the national side, the more you help basically the European army to come into place. That's how it works. Nicholas, can I turn to you um, for final comments as well uh, in terms of some of the questions you've heard and that thing about, you said very clearly um, single security budget isn't the way to go but cooperative budgeting might be. But how, how would you say, and it would be interesting to understand what do you think would might be the, main, the biggest driver for getting better integration cooperation than if it's not budgeting? Now, <clears throat> to be clear, I think uh, we need three things. One, uh, we need a possibility to have our national defense budget, which are going to be uh, complementary with a, with a sort of European defense budget. It's not, and it's very important here to tell you that, we are not going as member states, and member states are not giving up the sovereignty because as a whole, I mean, this is, this is what is at the core of the member states' own sovereignty. It's only adding a shift giving the possibility to do more. Two, if we want to have that, we need, and this is the, the response to the uh, gentleman who was uh, asking about uh, the 250 mm -hmm. uh, billion for a year and 600 uh, in the United States. What we want, and here this is very important to understand, we are at the beginning of a process. We are not at the end. We are at the very beginning. And the beginning means that today... Unfortunately, I am not totally sure that even with EDA, we have a very clear picture of what are our gaps mm -hmm. in Europe, mm -hmm. what are not. Absolutely. We, we, ha we have to do it. And uh, this is a little bit uh, the aim of the, the so-called uh, of CARD, what, uh, what we launch in order to have a very precise uh, uh, analysis. The third thing is that if we have the capacity and we have the budget, uh, then the third thing is the possibility to share a military doctrine. And if we can have the three things, common capabilities, a kind of budget, and a kind of military doctrine, then we are more integrated than before. I don't know if uh, the accident uh, will bring us to a European uh, army, perhaps once, but uh, I have some doubts to be very, very, uh, to be very clear uh, about it. But I think that, in the end, it is an incremental process which has but just begun. And this is, I think, what is here really important.
Thank you. Um, I need to conclude, but I know there'll be, you know, there's views that we always treat development and humanity aid as the poor part of the argument, so I'm going to make sure you have the space to say whatever you need to as I, as I wrap up. Okay, um, so I'll try to be very, very snappy then. I think just, and, and taking from some of the conversation that's happened around other issues, I think, Anna, you're absolutely right. We need to do development better. We need to do defence better. I would guess we need to do security better. Better cooperation is definitely a part of that. And I realise the irony of me as the Brit on the panel who's about to exit the EU saying this, so <laughs> apologies. But I think, you know, that, that level of cooperation and coordination that we can build, hopefully, as Europe, is going to be really important to that. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Colleagues, that's it. Um, that's all we've got time for. These Café Crossfires are an hour and a quarter, and we're, the time is up. Um, as an independent think tank, I suppose we wanted to fly a kite or actually raise a proposition. That's why I encourage you to read this document about cooperative security requires a budget, because we think we feel and, uh, and believe we actually need a hard-nosed conversation about actually if, if we want to have coherence and better integration of our peace, defence and security policy agenda, then we need to fly some of these issues into this multi-stakeholder conversation so we actually are able to air what's required in terms of connecting some of these issues Issues, debating the right ones and thinking about actually what are the policy changes that we really need to be thinking about and actually chess beating in this regard won't work we actually need rational thought and that's why we've contributed to this through this discussion paper but also this panel discussion thank you all for your time and energy and commitment uh, much appreciated and please join us afterwards for a, for a few drinks but thank you in the usual manner for your contributions